0: We're so richly blessed with the capability of singing and lifting our voices together here and what an enjoying exercise it is as we, in fact, exalt the name of God, praise His great and glorious being, and as we also have the privilege of opening His Word and letting that touch our lives and remind us of those matters, not only of importance here, but of transcendent importance for all of eternity. As you may have noted in the bulletin, as well as on the wall to my left, Our particular lesson today will involve Give Thanks to the Lord, taken from a text that will surround the one that was just read a moment ago in our hearing in the 136th Psalm. If you still have your finger at that place, I hope that you will hold it there throughout much of the lesson this morning as we look at some of the things stated in the 136th Psalm about the matter of thanksgiving and the issues surrounding it. We will look, in fact, at a threefold presentation about why one should consider giving thanks unto God. For for an introductory set of ideas, could I ask you to make mention or at least note these things with me? The idea of thanks, if you will, is not at all foreign to the Scriptures at all. In fact, 139 times in the King James translation, the word thanks, or some form thereof, occurs. And that's, of course, Old and New Testament alike, And as that word occurs so very often, there are times when it had to do with an offering. The children of Israel offered a thank offering. As we come to the New Testament, it's not utilized with the notion of offering per se quite so much as it is an attitude of constant presence in the heart of an individual. But today we shall have occasion to look at all of that in due course As we each know, this coming Thursday is a holiday set aside by our government and not ours only, but a few others around the world in which the notion of Thanksgiving itself is supposed to be the critical element for the reason of that holiday. Historically, that day first as near as history can tell us began as the pilgrims appreciated with great heartfelt thanks the blessing of God on their behalf to persevere through a very trying time of winter and the great blessing of a harvested crop that would permit the occasion of that duration. Somewhat later when George Washington proclaimed the first of the Thanksgiving holidays as an official holiday it still was surrounding the same idea. God's bountifulness on this land For all that he had done for it, the way it had begun, the preservation that it had experienced by his hand until that point, the victory over Britain in the revolution, and the first years of the setting up of its government, many things were appreciated to be a very clear presentation of God's blessing on this land. As the years have rolled by, our nation has still understood greatly, at least at its better moments, how wonderful God has been on our behalf to grant us all the blessings that he has. It would seem, though, that sometimes by the way that we see the response of individuals whom we may know, their attitude toward thanksgiving might be a little bit different than some of what we have at least stated to this point. There are some who seem to enjoy the gorging of a meal and the overeating and the watching of a football game, And it may be that that seems to be all the holiday is about. It's a day I get off from work and I can eat a lot and watch television. And admittedly, there isn't anything wrong with watching a football game. I've enjoyed many a one myself on that day. And certainly the communion with a family over a bountiful meal is a wonderful blessing indeed. But our question might be, if my thought goes no further than that, If I lift my eyes no higher than the bountiful table before me, appreciative of the family that's surrounding me and all these physical blessings and the one whose hand has provided them, I've missed a great deal about what that day is all about. I have failed to understand ultimately the very reason for thanksgiving itself. That kind of idea, it seems, is embedded in the 136th Psalm. And let's revisit that this morning with an attitude and a hopefulness of allowing it to touch our lives that we might better, not just this coming Thursday, but, yea, every day of the whole year, appreciative of the thanksgiving that should be filling our hearts with regard to the glorious wonder of God's bountiful provision. Well, that noted... Looking at the 136th Psalm, it divides itself into three parts and we shall follow that same course of division in the lesson this morning. May I invite you, if you would, to read along with me as I read the first nine verses of Psalm 136 and that will be the first section of our lesson this morning, Psalm 136, verses 1 through 9. "'O oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever.' O oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. O oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him who alone doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endureth forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endureth forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endureth forever. To pause after the reading of the first nine verses. We have seen what I have tried to head at the top of that is simply creation the physical universe about us, the physical things that we appreciate or at least observe day by day. The psalmist brings this to our minds as one of the things for which we should be ever ready, willing, and excited to give thanks unto God. Revisiting verse 1, he says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. The whole subject of this psalm is about giving thanks to God. All 26 of its verses In fact, if you wish to note it already, verses 1 and 26 form a beautiful set of bookends to the whole psalm. Verse 26 also begins with this phrase, O give thanks unto the God of heaven. God is deserving of our thanks for many reasons, and He will list several of them over the course of the psalm, but notice the very first matter that heads it in verse 1 is, For He is good. God alone is absolute perfect goodness. In every regard and in every fashion, all the goodness imaginable is embodied and rests with Him. There was an occasion in which a rich young ruler on one occasion came to our Savior and said, Good Master, what good thing should I do that I may inherit eternal life? And the first word of wisdom that the Lord shared with that young ruler was this, There is none good but God. All goodness in some way or form emanates from Him. He is the perfect embodiment and the absolute one at that of all that's good. The psalmist, even centuries ago, elevated that thought in the opening verse. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. As we pause and ponder about every good thing that's in my life and yours, every one of them, not just the food that we may enjoy Thursday and not just the warm homes and houses in which we reside, but every good thing, that loving spouse, those adorable children, the blessing of health itself, all of it, and every other one nameable, ultimately arrives for you and me by virtue of the bountiful goodness of the hand of God. We, in fact, fail greatly if we think that we are the source of it, we're so short-sighted if we actually believe that we're the ones that sustain it and make it happen. God is good. And it is for that reason, first and foremost, we should be happy and willing to offer to Him our thanks for all that He has done for you and me. In verses 3 and 4, he says, O oh, give thanks unto the God of gods and also to the Lord of lords. The psalmist, of course, dwelt in a day and in a time when there was this rampant idolatry and even at times it worked its way into Israel. Even God's own people at times worshipped him and worshipped these other idolatrous beings. In their better moments, they understood the folly of any such and they were reminded by God's prophets on many occasions about how they ought to think seriously and clearly about really what they're doing for there is no equal to God. I've noted that two of the prophets in their great statements, in Isaiah 46, verse number 9, that bold and courageous prophet Isaiah, in fact, drew a visual picture about idolatry that almost brings a chuckle to our face. To paraphrase some of that chapter, he said, these particular idols that are built, they have to ride on a beast because they can't walk. You talk to them, but they can't hear you. Isn't that interesting? You bow down before such a thing, and yet you have to haul it around on a cart or on the back of a donkey because it can't walk on its own. Now, how great a thing is that, really? The psalmist, of course, here brings us to realize if one even could imagine God's, there really is only one. Give thanks to the God of gods. As we noted in Isaiah 46, verse number 9, remember the former things of old. I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none else. That's what the Lord said in Jeremiah 10, verse number 10, that bold prophet on that occasion, as he drew another picture about the fact that there is God, but there are these things that other men call gods. He said there is one true living God. Sometimes in our prayers we utter and make mention of the fact that thou art God, the true and living God. That text is probably where a statement like that ultimately came from. He is the only living true God. As the psalmist begins then by noting the very one to whom thanks is deserving, that he is Lord of Lords, and He's God of gods. He gets us started then in verses four and following in these words as a testimony to how great he is. We noted just a moment ago that these other things that men's hands have made, they can't walk, they can't do anything. They can't hear, their hands don't move unless you move them. Look at what the God of heaven has done. Verse number 5, To him that by wisdom made the heavens, the beautiful stretch of sky that's before us, the amazing character of all that's there, the sheer amazing nature of its wonder. Who made all of that? Who fashioned it, placed those stars in their orbs, positioned the celestial character of all of it as he did? It did not occur as a random happenstance event. It is far too majestic for that. In terms of the creation of heaven, the psalmist takes us back to Genesis chapter 1 For we remember that in the very first verse in all the Bible, we are there told that in the beginning God made the heaven and the earth. As he made reference to the heavens, that expanse of the thing before us, not merely the atmosphere of earth, but even the far distant reaches of the cosmos, God fashioned those things. And as he fashioned them, verse number 5 reminds us he did it by wisdom. Astronomers and cosmologists and scientists find great enjoyment, and rightly so, to peer their telescopes and the other types of light seeking devices into the heavens and to try and appreciate the enormous wonder that's there. It is truly a breathtaking exercise. Notice the psalmist says that, in terms of that part of creation, God fashioned it, and He did it in wisdom. But notice verse 6, he stretched out the earth above the waters. Scientists may find that strange and odd to stretch out the earth above the waters and yet the second verse in the book of Genesis reminds us again that that's exactly what God did. As he stretched out the earth above the waters, there was a boundary, if you will, This universe, in essence, is bounded by the character of the way God has contrived it and the way he has set it up and to bring the matter closer to home. Verse number seven, to him that made great lights, and he even lists them for us. The sun by day, the moon, and the stars by night. As you and I can see the sunshine peering its blessedness through the windows of our building, We can understand the warmth, the energy that's present therein, but think about what that energy allows to occur. It provides the energy for the process of photosynthesis and the plants that are able to grow thereby. All the food that you and I take in owes in some way its origin to that thought and idea. God made all that happen. We ought to offer to Him our thanks for the character of this physical universe and in the night sky hangs that marvelous moon, that we can look at the maria, the dark spots upon it, and appreciate that it, too, is a timeless testimony of the fact that as it orbits our planet, God made it and sustains it in that fashion. Those stars that we see, do they not just beg us to be appreciative for what's there? This past Friday night, it was a very chilly night, the chillest of the season so far, I think. But it was also such a clear night. If you looked into the heavens on Friday night, I'm sure you saw spectacles and the number of stars looked a bit more than normal because the clarity allowed the atmosphere to pass that light perhaps more directly. It was truly a marvelous thing to see. As all those stars twinkled and shined, and as they gave the appearance of their position perhaps far distance away from us, who made it? It was God. And you and I have the capability to appreciate that beauty. But as we appreciate it, let us stop to pause and offer thanks to God for having fashioned it. To see those things in the first nine verses has perhaps made us realize that the physical things about us from day to day, the glory of all the physical things we enjoy, we ought to thank God for it. The psalmist, in fact, did on this occasion and urged all of us by inspiration to do the same. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. And just as surely as the testimony of His physical creation speaks of His goodness, it should beg us to honor Him as the one who fashioned it. On many occasions through the sacred scriptures, we are urged to ever be thankful for the physical things about us. In fact, is it not still true, as we noted this past Wednesday evening from a study of Romans 1, that when mankind ceases to be thankful, when he ceases to understand the ultimate origin and source of these blessings, he is a short step from complete apostasy. Paul said that in Romans 1, verses 20 and 21. May we ever thus have a heart tender enough to understand be it this Thursday or any of the other 364 days in a year, that we owe to God dramatic and powerful thanks for all that He has done physically for you and me. It's so appropriate, isn't it, as we've already prayed this morning, thanking God for the physical blessings such as our health, such as the other things like our food and our clothing and our shelter. But may we ever be abundant in that thanks to Him throughout each day of the year. But the psalmist has much more to say. There are other things for which we should have an attitude of thankfulness. Let's begin reading in verse number 10, and let's read through verse number 22. Psalm 136, verses 10 through 22. "'To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endureth forever, and brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endureth forever.' with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which divideth the Red Sea into parts, for his mercy endureth forever. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endureth forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endureth forever." To him which smote great kings, for his mercy endureth forever, and slew famous kings, for his mercy endureth forever. Sihon king of the Amorites, for his mercy endureth forever, and Og the king of Bashan, for his mercy endureth forever, and gave their land for inheritance, for his mercy endureth forever. Even inheritance unto Israel his servant, for his mercy endureth forever. That reading of verses 10 through 22 brings us now more clearly to look at another aspect of what God has done. Whereas the first nine verses prepared our mind to offer thanks to God for the physicalness of His creation. Notice in these verses the fact that God has shown favor to the human family. There's more than just an earth upon which we walk. And there's more than a sun that hangs in the sky. And there's more than the moon and the stars. He has directly interacted with the human family and showed favor to us. And for that, we too should also be exceedingly thankful. The psalmist, in fact, makes a special mention of his people, the people of Israel. And let's begin again in verse number 10. He says, to him that smote Egypt, and to any Jew would immediately come the recognition that God brought them out of Egyptian captivity. They were nothing more than a band of slaves who were hopeless and helpless. They were powerless to defeat the strong and mighty army of Egypt, and yet they not only came forth from Egypt, but they came forth triumphantly. At the Red Sea, as the author noted more than once, Egypt changed their mind on one occasion and proceeded to chase after the people of Israel. But at the Red Sea, there was Moses who stretched out his rod over that sea because God told him to. And he said, Behold and watch today what the Lord shall do in your midst. The children of Israel couldn't have parted that water, but God did it. He parted that Red Sea and congealed those waters on each side, and Israel marched through on dry land And when the Egyptians thought that they too could pass forth, God held back the restraining force. The waters came through upon them and drowned them. That was a singular event in the history of that nation. They now were a people free finally from Egypt. They were set on course to the land of promise. And God had not only gave them that promise, but would by virtue of the law given at Sinai provide for them their government and everything surrounding the plentifulness of a relationship with him. God interacted with that people. He poured his blessings upon them. He didn't just sprinkle them. He showered lavishly his blessings upon ancient Israel. And might we say by inspiration, that serves timelessly still today as a bountiful blessing for us. We noted in the, in the idea of the Bible study this morning the fact that Israel served as a type, at least in its better moments, of the church of which you and I are now a part. Isn't that beautiful? If they receive manna from heaven six days out of every week, shouldn't we be thankful for the seven-day-a-week glorious blessings we receive spiritually? The answer is self-evident, isn't it? Oh, how we owe God so much we should be so very thankful unto Him for the nature of what He has shown us so favorably. Just as surely as God has revealed Himself then in the physicalness of His creation, He has also revealed Himself specifically to the human family by virtue of this written revelation. How thankful are we and should we be for it? We would never make heaven without it. We would know nothing about what Christ did for us without it. We would be absolutely hopeless in appreciation and understanding of ultimately the love God had for the human family without it. This book, all 66 of the books that comprise it, literally is the Logos of God, it is the Word. Jesus is the ultimate epitome of that word, and in its presentation, we find God speaking to us. Ought not we be thankful among all the books that may comprise the libraries of the human family? None can compare with this one, and all of us are blessed to have copies. We can read it, study it, ponder it, consider it, appreciate it, and apply it. May I submit to you then that there are so many things for which we have every opportunity and right to be thankful. But yet there is one other aspect of the chapter. We might wonder what's left. Thankful for the physical universe, verses 1 to 9, and all the physical blessings of it. Thankful for God's especial dealings with us, verses 10 to 22. Perhaps the highest crescendo though is left for the closing verses. I would ask you, you note with me as we read through verses 23 to 26 and close the chapter. Yet listing also to other things for which we can be thankful. Who remembered us in our lowest state? For his mercy endureth forever. And hath redeemed us from our enemies? For his mercy endureth forever. Who giveth food to all flesh? For his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks unto the God of heaven for His mercy endureth forever. As we have read through now all 26 verses of the 136th Psalm, may I submit to you that in the closing verses that we've just read, isn't it interesting the usage of the pronouns? Who remembered us in our low estate? The psalmist had in mind the especial way that God had blessed Israel favored her far and above every other nation of earth. May I submit, let's you and I put us in that. We don't live in ancient Israel, admittedly, but we do live in spiritual Israel. In Galatians 6, verse 16, we are expressly told that there is a spiritual Israel today, and you and I as the church are that Israel. In light of an idea like that, who remembered us in our lowest state. There was a time when you and I, every one of us who've reached the age of accountability within the sound of my voice, there was a time when you and I were enemies from God, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, absolutely hopeless in all regards that were important. Ephesians 2 verse 12. But yet God remembered us. He didn't cast us off eternally and leave us hopeless and without any possibility to come to Him. Rather, in his remembrance, he sent his Son, that you and I might come to know the gracious goodness of his beneficence toward us and to appreciate all the things put in place on our behalf. He remembered us. Might we never forget, he remembered Noah. When Noah and the others were on that ark and had floated many days, the text says in Genesis 8 verse 1, God remembered Noah. God remembered him, sustained him, made the survivorship upon that ark, that which not only led to the preservation of the human family, but repopulated the entirety of earth. God also has remembered you and me. In Romans 5 verse 8, we read a text like this one, beginning in verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, you and I were on the dust heap of desperation. We were the enemies of God. We were without strength to do anything meritorious in terms of God's favor toward us. And yet he commended his love toward me, Randy Bybee, and toward each one of you as well, in that he sent his perfect, godless, sinless, absolutely ideal son, and died on my stead at Calvary. And he did that for you too. Hasn't God then remembered us gloriously? And hasn't he remembered us in a majestic way? Oh, how thankful we should be. But let us notice also the next verse, And hath redeemed us from our enemies. Anxiety Israel knew her enemies, certainly. There were always those Babylonians and the Egyptians and the other individuals like the nations of the Arabian Peninsula. But might I suggest, as spiritual Israel, there's one chief enemy that still seeks to overpower us and overwhelm us. In 1 Peter 5 eight, he is described in language like this, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In the interest of devouring you and me, we have an ever-present enemy as well, but God has remembered us and redeemed us. That word redeem means to buy back, to regain possession of. As I mentioned earlier, before we obeyed the gospel, we were the possession of the devil. We served in his army But the time came we made a better decision. We chose, in fact, to allow God to redeem us by submitting humbly to the statutes of the will of heaven. We've been redeemed. May I submit that just as surely as we can be thankful for the food that we may eat Thursday and for the joyous wonder of a loving family, may we also appreciate the spiritual blessings through Jesus our Lord. The capability that we have, not that we can earn heaven, but that God remembered us, and He allowed redemption for us to take place. In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter perhaps take this crescendo to one higher level when he says, You weren't redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of one without spot and without blemish. There was the agency that redeemed you and me, and it continues to be so. As we thus offer God thanks for the physical universe about us and the wonders of the world and all the things that we see day by day, and as we thank Him for the fact He's revealed Himself to us in the Word, that Word testifies of what we've read closing this chapter, the greatness of His gift for us. No wonder Paul said, thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15. And perhaps you noted as we draw our lesson to a conclusion this Sunday morning that in all 26 verses of that chapter, and as far as I know it's the only chapter of the Bible for which something like that occurs, there's a phrase that occurs in every one of the verses, for His mercy endureth forever. It's not hard at all to appreciate the psalmist didn't want his listeners to miss the point. And by inspiration, the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to miss it either. His mercy endureth forever. We understand that if we are to be the eternal recipients of that mercy, we must advantage ourselves of what he has revealed, that redemption of which I spoke, and that redemption to which he points our attention. Have you been redeemed today? That answer or the answer to that question doesn't come by merely thinking about it. We ought to know and we can know. Have you had your sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb, Acts 22, 16? If the answer to that is no, then you haven't been redeemed. You are still living in sin. Christ paid the price for your sins, but at this point, you're still covered in them because you haven't allowed Christ's blood to cleanse your sins. Today, that needs to be changed It ought to be changed to make a better life for you here and to prepare for the only life hereafter. If we could help you doing that today, be thankful unto God for what he has done, revealing the nature of his son, the plan of salvation that we can so easily come to know. Even a child can understand God's plan of salvation. It doesn't take a PhD degree in Aristotelian logic to understand it. It's easy to understand. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess the name of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God and be baptized. Upon so doing, you'll be added to the church, Acts 2.47, and can walk faithfully with Him until death. If you need to, though, be rededicated to your first love today, we could also make sure that that can be accomplished following the lesson of Acts 8. If we could help you today by prayer and by prayer for strength and encouragement, We would certainly be honored to do that as well. If either of these things would be the need of your life and heart today, would you not let it be known if you would? For together we stand and while we sing.